Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Parable of the Untimely Ancient, or The Sleep of Reason Produces Monsters, by Taliesin Gore. The first thing of which I became aware was a longing to return to the protective, watery gulfs of oblivion from which I had been, as it seemed to me, untimely awakened. The second thing I came to know was a purely physical, terrestrial darkness that surrounded me, a pale shadow of that more profound, spiritual darkness from which I had but lately emerged. But as dreams upon awakening retreat from the hard stare of daylight to find refuge in such meagre bastions of night, caves, and deep forest glooms, as Apollo permits to persist into the realm of his diurnal dominion, so did all but the most fleeting memory of that beautiful darkness of the before-time evade the feeble gropings of Mnemosyne. But for these memories all were shrouded in obscurity. This was the third thing that I came to know. Past and future were alike hidden from me. The face of the inscrutable gazed down upon me, sphinx-like, cryptic, expressionless. The fourth thing was the awareness that I could breathe only through my nose, and that there were objects, tubes inserted into my nostrils, on account of which I could draw in and release air from my lungs only very slowly. Panicking, I sat up and began to fumble at my face, seeking the intrusive objects. My hands were clumsy, unaccustomed as they were to movement, and seemed strangely to lack the finer sense of touch. Despite this, after only a few seconds of groping, I managed to get a firm grip on the objects, and found that they came away easily. Immediately I began to draw in long, full breaths through my nose. Everything seemed to whirl and spin about me, and I almost fainted. Recovering myself, I made a conscious effort to steady my breathing, taking long, slow lungfuls of an atmosphere cool, though strangely dry, the smell musty yet faintly aromatic, as of some very ancient perfume. This, the scent and texture of the air, was the fifth thing of which I became aware. Tentatively feeling with my hands, I found myself to be lying upon some moth-eaten fabric. Exploring further, my hands encountered small, desiccated skeletal forms. Their softer parts crumbled at my touch, while other parts retained a sinewy, brittle integrity. At first I felt with a kind of unconscious, thoughtless curiosity— However, it was not long before that faculty of inner vision so appropriately dubbed imagination was aroused from the dormancy into which it had apparently fallen, in the unknown period of time during which my soul had inhabited the world of the long sleep. Then the feeling of the tiny dry bodies began, by the power of association, to give rise to obscure and frightful images in my mind's eye. I will spare you, reader— a description of these ghastly idola. Suffice it to say that I was overcome by a wave of horror and panic, as a consequence of which I attempted, in a great hurry, to rise to my feet and place the greatest possible distance 
between myself and those disturbing objects. It was thus that, quite suddenly, I found myself falling through empty space. The sensation cannot have lasted longer than a fragment of time. A fragment, however, stretched beyond its natural duration by the unexpectedness and absolute novelty of the sensation. It was then swiftly succeeded by another sensation—the painful impact of my right shoulder against stone. Thus was intense pain the sixth thing to dawn upon my awareness. As I rolled on the hard ground, groaning, I felt the unknown little bodies, which I must have brought down in my panicked flailing and subsequent fall, crunch and disintegrate beneath me. For a while I simply lay dazed with pain. After some time the pain dulled, and the stupefied rest which accompanies the momentary subsiding of agony was the seventh thing that I came to know. I was now, however, destined to receive a second shock, one of a very different, far more sublime order than the first, for now it was that the place in which I had awoken to this world chose to reveal itself to me. This it did by way of a great and sudden flood of light. Reader, you can well imagine how little prepared were my eyes, that had been sealed for so long in entombed darkness, while my soul had wandered far in the regions of the long sleep, for so sudden and unheralded an influx of that luminous element. Immediately I covered my eyes with my hands, and rolled over so that I lay on my front, desperate to escape the unbearable illumination. As I recovered from my shock and pain, I conceived a method of adjusting my eyes to the light by gradual degrees. But first— I allowed a crack to open between my fingers, admitting a slither of light. When, after some moments, this modicum of luminance became tolerable to my eyes, I widened the crack a little further. Thus I continued, widening the aperture a little at a time, until, finally, I was able to gaze directly at the floor beneath me. Thus I discovered that the corpse-like forms which had so frightened me and had occasioned my fall, was simply the ancient and desiccated husks of flowers, and a great number of them. When I at last raised my eyes, there was unfolded to my sight a marvellous splendour of living colour. I found that I was in a fairly large domed chamber or vault, whose walls were adorned with the most fantastic painted imagery. It seemed to me that there must be whole sagas— Entire mythologies and histories of peoples figured there in a fabulous artwork which was at once literal and symbolic, illustration and language. I could only guess at the secrets that those glyphs must harbour, only to be unlocked by such initiates as were versed in the mysterious language in which they spoke. In a like strange and wonderful manner was the room illuminated. Beams and rays of a gorgeous light formed beautiful interleaving geometries, three-dimensional architectures which hung semi-substantial in the air. Turning my gaze upwards, I discovered that this refulgent display had its source in a number of polygonal glass lanterns which hung from the ceiling. They seemed to have been designed in imitation of the stars of the night sky. Each one shot forth intersecting and geometrical rays— and these rays passed between them, 
caught in and intensified by the crystal panes of glass, so that the strength and brightness of each lantern was increased by the ingenuity of their design, and the artifice of their arrangement in relation to each other. This light, in turn, intensified the colours of the painted images and figures on the wall, so that they seemed to stand out from the stone that anchored them, and to acquire spectral yet palpable forms. But as, in an unexpected interval of silence, one becomes uncomfortably aware of the ticking of a clock, so I now became sensible of a coldness that seemed to reside in my very bones. This sensation was highly disturbing, and suddenly a wave of bewilderment and horror swept over my soul, threatening to drown me. Simultaneously, a hundred half-formed questions flooded into my mind, and whirled around like bats in an echoing cave. What was this place? How had I come here? Who was I? Whom did I belong to? Was this dome-shaped room the whole world, and I the only one who inhabited it? Or were there others, other places, and other beings like myself? Perhaps as a result of the mingled wonder and bewilderment of my awakening, the life and sense seemed to have fled from my limbs— and it was some time before I was able to stand. At length, however, I began to recover my senses, and to look about me more carefully. Near one of the corners of the vault, a flight of steps descending into the chamber interrupted the wall's gloriously blazoned surface. The stairwell was perhaps four strides in width, the steps broad and smooth. For now I feared the ascent into the unknown too greatly to risk leaving this place, which had at least the advantage of being more familiar than whatever unknown perils awaited me above. And so I remained in the chamber where I had first awoken to existence, there being no other way apparent by which I might begin to unravel the riddle of how I had come to be here. I occupied myself in studying the paintings on the walls. I entertained little hope of deciphering the wonderful hieroglyphics yet they exerted a strange fascination over my mind. Somehow they hinted at half-remembered things which lay hidden in some obscure, benighted region of my being, pieces of a vast mosaic which, if only I could assemble them in the true order, would yield some wondrous illumination of all the mysteries which beset me, and all that were contained in the world's vast dome beside. I do not know how long I remained there. Days, certainly. Perhaps weeks. There was nothing in that place to mark the passage of time, save the strange pageantry of phantoms and visions which passed perpetually before my inner sight, each one presenting itself there for a moment, before fading once more into the fathomless regions from which it had arisen. Nothing changed. Nothing stirred. Only those mysterious paintings seemed somehow alive, and ever to be arranging or suggesting themselves in new configurations, which yet told me nothing that could be made intelligible to my reason. It is not strictly true that there was nothing to mark time's passing, for there were the vibrations, that strange humming of the stone that I felt intermittently through the ground beneath me, and sometimes in the walls when I touched them with my hands— as if that way I might grasp the substance of the wonderful things figured there. 
Indeed, they seem to me as living things, magical and maddeningly beautiful creatures, who could not be captured or tamed. At length, I was forced to the conclusion that if I was to come any closer to making sense of my existence, I must wrench myself from this bright cavern which so attracted and tantalized me, and yet would not allow me to pluck a single one of those bright fruits of knowledge which it held out, and whose illusory substance melted before my grasping fingers, that I must venture into that unknown world above, or else remain in the darkness of confusion and ignorance, until such time as my physical being perished, or the world itself came to an end, whichever might chance to fall first. In the illumination which split from the chamber, the staircase's lower portion was visible. Beyond, it receded through thickening gradations of shadow into black opacity. The greater part of my ascent was, therefore, slow and cautious, as I was constrained to feel along the wall with my hands, and to probe with my feet for every step. It was, too, a very long ascent. As I progressed, the vibrations in the stone grew stronger, at times increasing to such an intensity that my feet and legs were numbed, and I feared lest I might trip or even tumble back down the long way I had climbed. At last I perceived a light some distance above me. As I at length drew closer, I saw that, through a stone grating which lay at the termination of the ascent, a gruelish light leaked onto the topmost steps like a corrosive chemical liquid produced by some unnatural experiment. Then it was that I first began to hear the cries from above. Strange cries they were, like the howls of beasts in some wild orgy in the forest's dark, atavistic heart. What little strength had remained in my legs gave way before these disturbing noises. I half collapsed onto the steps beneath me. Now there stole over me a queer inertia, composed partly of fear of the terrors that must await me, partly of simple fatigue after my strenuous ascent. I cannot say for how long I might have remained there, delaying the decision to venture into that, so to speak, terra incognita which lay beyond and above, had not some outside power intervened to prompt my reluctant spirits into motion. This it did by causing the stone grating to roll aside, leaving the portal to that upper realm clear of obstruction. When I finally found the courage to step over the threshold, I emerged into a phantasmal, lurid world, populated, it seemed, by the flora and fauna of an opium dream. In a way it was a second birth, and my first tottering steps in this new life were through a birth scum composed in part of a mixture of liquors which reeked of chemicals, partly of the polychromatic shards of various shattered glass bottles and other vessels. Before me, like the cleft-lipped maw of some monstrous Patrian fish, stood a large archway. Without knowing from whence I derived the knowledge, I somehow knew that the edifice into which the portal afforded passage was, or had once been, a church. Whatever purpose it now served, it was clearly a function far removed from its ecclesiastical office of old. Upon the arch, the word Cirque 
blazed in great letters which appeared to be made of tubes filled with some chemically phosphorescent fluid. Volumes of people streamed continuously through the archway, all dressed in outlandish and extravagant costume, and collectively resembling an awful travesty of a procession passing through one of the noble triumphal arches of the Roman Forum. On the arch's apex perched one of those grotesque physiognomies which are such a common sight on the cornices of cathedrals and churches. The face seemed to be made up entirely of folds of fatty flesh, contorted into a leer that was somehow both depraved and destitute of hope. On either side of the hideous mask, webbed fingers fanned out like the frills of some exotic saurian beast. From a hole in its mouth descended a thin stream of green liquid, anointing the heads of some of those who passed below, and eliciting from them loud squawks and roars. Whether of pleasure or protest, I could not tell. Then I saw that there was a balcony above the archway, where three of the pantomimic creatures, laughing with cruel festivity, were pouring the contents of a green bottle into the top of the grotesque's head, from whence it exited the mouth. While I stood viewing this fantastic scene, a spellbound horror seized all my faculties. Like a somnambulist, I was drawn into that colourful, clamorous, swirling stream, as it surged resistlessly beneath the archway. I now saw before me a voluminous red cloak that looked as though it were made of glass, with a strangely flat colour within it. My contemplation of this marvellous effect was rudely interrupted by a forceful impact between my shoulder-blades. Nauseous and frightened, I turned to behold an extraordinary face grinning into my own with most ferocious effect. It was painted in yellow and orange stripes, presumably in imitation of the fiery markings of that fabulous beast of Ind, the tiger, feeling his nails, which were unnaturally long and hard, gouging the flesh between my shoulders, I cried out, or rather on account of the fabric covering my mouth gurgled in pain, perhaps taking this to mean that I was suffering from dehydration or some abstraction of the windpipe. He poured a good deal of the contents of a bottle into my face. Since I was unable to open my mouth— this solicitous act succeeded only in drenching me in the unpleasant-smelling liquid. He clapped me on the shoulder again, and plunged back into the surrounding crowd. As he did so, letting loose a jovial roar, worthy of the beast whose appearance he was sporting. Just before disappearing into the midst of that freakish tide, he tossed the bottle casually into the air, occasioning an exclamation of shrill indignation from a female creature nearby. Almost immediately, her hands went up solicitously to a most marvellous specimen of crinal topiary, which, by some extraordinary contrivance of the headdresser's art, had been made to resemble one of the huge spiders of Tarentine. I had, however, little time to admire this before, borne along in that great moving mass of people like a twig in a rapid-flowing river, I was swept beneath the archway— and plunged into sudden night. The first thing that greeted my senses as I was conveyed into that cavernous interior was the most hideous clamour, such a cacophony as could only be the song of a host of mechanical and tone-deaf sirens. Yet more bewildering, however, 
was what I beheld with my eyes. It was like a scene from Tartarus. The place into which the archway gave had clearly been the nave of the erstwhile church. The fluted pillars and arches supporting the vault still stood, although they had in many places been covered with a strange graffiti in dark colours, featuring geometrical patterns and crude, stylized representations of creatures and scenes resembling those who now milled luridly about the columns. A large black curtain hung from floor to ceiling and wall to wall, concealing the chancel, lights having no visible origin, and consisting of a kind of faintly luminous coloured mist, roved and hovered through the air in shafts and beams and showers of moving lozenges or orbs. They undulated over the congealed yet fluid mass of the bestial revellers like the light of an alien sunset on a lurid, roiling sea. Here and there, a kind of vaporous mist hovered in veils and twined in tendrils among the moving bodies, overlaying onto the chaos of the scene a hint of the spectral. The creatures were concentrated in the central space of that building, in a swirling mass of flesh and costume. In their midst there also here and there surfaced other shapes, shapes like billowing sails from storm-shattered ships, periodically disgorged by surging waves, or the white humpbacks of great whales. These moved in a manner incongruous with the rest, and, in some obscure way, horrifying to me. These observations flashed through my mind in a very short space of time, during which I was swept inexorably towards the pulsing centre of that carnivalesque tourbillion, unable to extricate myself from the stampeding mass without being trampled underfoot. As I neared that core of pandemonium, I discovered the source of the vibrations which I had felt running through the stone floor and walls of the bright cave, for I now felt, thrumming and pulsing through the ground beneath my feet, a rhythmic vibration— it was as if a tribe of titans, imprisoned in subterraneous vaults below, were engaged in Herculean mechanical labours, or perhaps pounding to attract the attention of the beings who disported themselves above. Much of the interval that now ensued takes the form of a series of disarticulated tableau, of flashes of hideous revelation. As the lights in that place flashed and pulsed, and the room seemed to swell and contract like the beating heart of some monster, there appeared before me, one by one, a cornucopia of antic forms, arising from and melting into the surrounding chaos like demented bubbles from the mind of some demoniac demiurge. Once a woman came turbinating towards me like a piece of flotsam, laughing maniacally and spraying the contents of her glass in a ring about her. I stepped aside, just in time to avoid a collision. No sooner had I recovered from this shock than I was shunted from behind, and found my face pressed into a pelt of shaggy fur, and my arms, to keep myself from falling, embracing a wide, irregularly shaped pillar. I soon realized my mistake, however, when what I had, in my blind panic, taken for an inanimate object, began massively and ponderously to turn about. In terror, I sprang back. I made wild gestures of propitiation to avert the terrible wrath of the gargantuan being whom I had disturbed. 
there was now turned upon me a large, round, heavily bearded face. At the face's centre was what must have been a small, artificial snout, for remnants of string which must once have fastened the adornment to the being's head dangled from its base at either side, like ropes of desiccated mucus. However, the thing had apparently fused itself to the mammoth visage that it had made its habitation, and the fur had colonized areas of the cheek and upper lip. From above this snout, two bloodshot eyes stared with an expression that I found intensely disturbing. It resembled the blind fear of a trapped beast. This, however, was but a prelude to a sight far more disturbing, for I now perceived that the creature was staring not at me, but at something over my shoulder. Turning, I came face to face with a terrifying apparition. It was a face, or rather a mask. It seemed, in fact, to be modelled after one of those primitive masks of the ancient Greek theatre, presumably that which was meant to personify comedy. The hideous grimace into which that plaster countenance was twisted, however, had just as much in common with the expressions of grief and extreme horror as with mirth. Whether this effect was due to the geometric design, painted in dark greens and reds and blues which embellished the mask, or whether it derived from the actual expression of the mask beneath, I cannot say. Simultaneously, seeing the great bulky mass of white fabric to which that frightful visage was appended, I perceived that the being which confronted me was one of those mysterious white forms which I had glimpsed among the mass of the revellers upon first entering that place. For a few awful moments, the creature stared into my eyes from lidless eyes that seemed not to be made from those vitreous humours which are the substance of human or animal eyes, but to be perfect orbs of glass and precious stone. The irises were the colour of amber, but strangest of all were the pupils, black crystals honeycombed with queer labyrinthine facets. Several times these pupils contracted and dilated, as if to bring my face into clearer focus while I stood there, frozen with fear. And then, slowly, the awful mask turned from me, and towards the snouted being who still stood behind me. Still dazed with fright, I backed slowly away from the masked monster, as it approached that unfortunate one, paralyzing the poor creature with its gorgonian gaze, as it had done me. Beneath the white drapery covering its body, there were suggestions of strange movements resembling the insectile scuttling of a mechanical marionette. Yet something even more horrible was to come. For now, from within the white folds of drapery there emerged a claw, but not a claw of flesh and blood. No, something far worse, for this was formed from an assemblage of materials which, by all nature's most sacred laws, should not constitute part of the body of any animate being. It was a contraption of ivory, and strange, semi-transparent cords which seemed to perform the office of tendons. It moved with the simultaneously delicate and ungainly motions of a crane-fly's legs, the fingers gently wavering before its face as if somehow tasting the air. Nearer and nearer towards the helpless snouted creature's head, 
did those wavering fingers float. Finally, the claw itself opened, stretching wide, and began, very carefully and gently, to close over the creature's head. Before I could discover what that masked, unnaturally animated thing planned to do with its victim, I was swept once more into the roiling crowd and away from the scene of horror. So, for a spell of time, I gave myself up to the welter and chaos of bodies, happy for the nonce, to flee from a greater horror into the arms of a lesser and more familiar one. When next I came to comparative lucidity, I was among a party of four or five fantastically attired females. They were gaudily decked out in quills and plumes, long-feathered capes and scarves, and wore ornate, jewel-encrusted masks formed in imitation of the beaks of birds. Elegantly and flowingly they moved, contorting their bodies into a series of artistic, almost hieroglyphic shapes. As the inward-facing circle that they formed seemed to be retaining its integrity against the circumjacent chaos, I determined to remain there as long as I could, in the interests of rendering myself less conspicuous and more acceptable to them, I attempted in my clumsy way to imitate their sinuous movements. They were too astute not to see through my tyrannic efforts. One looked down upon me over her beak, as she might have gazed upon a worm that she had unearthed, one so filthy and groveling that she deigned not to eat it. Her volacrine sisters all surveyed me with similar expressions of distaste. Though I squirmed under their scrutiny, I chose rather to suffer their scorn than risk once more entering the maelstrom which still whirled dizzyingly around. There arose, however, a happy circumstance to deflect their attention from me. This was the arrival of a man whose iridescence of attire resembled and rivalled in glory the tail-feathers of a peacock. Placing himself before one of the women, this specimen commenced a performance so elaborate and bizarre as to rival the mating dance of the male bird of paradise. One of the other women was driven into such a rage, perhaps because these attentions were not directed towards her, that she must needs relieve herself by an act of gratuitous violence against me. Roughly, she seized me by my head, digging her fingers into its flesh, and sending a lancing pain into my skull. I attempted to cry out. However, my mouth being, as I related earlier, sealed shut, I could produce only a helpless gargling in my throat. I lifted my hands before me in a gesture by which I intended at once to express agony, contrition, and propitiation. This seemed only to goad her the more. Gathering her strength, her hands still holding my head in their talon-like grip, she flung me back outside the circle. As I once more struggled in the midst of that swirling tophet of barely human forms, feeling myself to be near the end of my strength, there came to me a felicitous thought. Surely, if I were but able to communicate with these people by intelligible speech and explain to them my circumstances, they could be induced to treat me in a rational and humane manner. I knew that my mouth was wrapped in some kind of fabric which rendered speech impossible. The obvious course, then, was to discover some way of removing the obstacle. If I could somewhere find a mirror, 
or indeed any kind of reflective surface wherein I might inspect my appearance, I thought, I might be better placed to determine whether, and by what means, the removal of the impeding bandages might be achieved. I was interrupted in these meditations by the timely reappearance of the tiger, rolled out of the surrounding chaos like a burning comet. Ah, here was one who had at least, albeit in his crude manner, expressed some friendly feeling towards me. It was thus with something of the gladness that one greets the unexpected arrival of an old friend that I hailed him. I know not how, perhaps through sheer luck or an inspiration born of desperation, I managed to communicate to him by signs that I desired to be shown to a mirror in which I might gaze upon my own countenance. Making various gestures, accompanied by guttural vocalizations whose meaning I could not decipher but which apparently gave him the greatest amusement, he took me by the shoulders, and forcefully, though not without skill, steered me through the swirling press of bodies. When we reached the edge of the maelstrom, he placed me before a door, and, gesturing to me to go through it, launched himself with great aplomb back into the chaos. Upon the door was a symbol which appeared to be a very simplified and stylized representation of a human figure. It was, in a way, reminiscent of those figures which our antediluvian forebears once daubed upon the walls of caves. I vaguely conjectured that it might represent some primitive deity whom they venerated. Inside there were indeed several mirrors, placed above ceramic basins with water faucets. There were also a number of compartments, resembling stalls designed to house miniature horses, but I soon discovered from the noises emanating from them that they were designed to afford privacy in the discharge of those animal functions which unite us with the brute creation. One creature, who was dressed as a macaroni, with a long black periwig and short velvet coat of vermilion trimmed in gold, was bent over one of the basins, and inhaling something through a straw. This, upon closer inspection, revealed itself as a quantity of white powder. Whatever this substance's chemical constitution, it certainly seemed to invigorate him. He turned towards me a face powdered white, with lips painted in the same vermeil hue as his coat, extended in a long thin smirk up the cheeks to meet the corners of the eyes, whose lids were of the same colour. Turning and catching sight of me, his eyes widened, and he broke into high peals of hysterical laughter. The fantastical creature then pranced to the door through which I had just entered, stopping as he passed me, to emit a shriek of mock terror. After I had recovered myself from this, I called upon what reserves of courage I possessed, and approached the mirror above the sink which he had just left. Although I knew that my face was covered by some kind of fabric, it was nonetheless something of a shock to me, to behold in the mirror a head swathed in bandages of a red so dark that it was almost black, and completely featureless, save for the protuberance of the nose, and the eyes which looked out from two circular holes. The eyes were amber, almost golden in colour, and it was a strange experience to look into them, as though for the first time. There came to me a flicker of recognition, of half-memory, which disappeared as mysteriously as it arrived. 
as I saw myself, it came into my mind that I must be in costume like everybody else. This, then, I surmised, was the manner in which all sentient beings were born into this world, already in disguise. So the world itself was merely a grotesque pantomime, in which all were forced to play out their assigned parts, with no script and no knowledge of the real selves that lay beneath the costumes. Then I thought, why not remove the costume? Had nobody yet thought of that? But encountering my own trepidation at the thought of unveiling the unknown self who lay beneath those bandages, I knew it must be fear that prevented them, fear of what they would find beneath. For there might lie something more truly hideous than the mock grotesquerie of their costumes. Better then to play out a prescribed part blindly, with no higher guidance or purpose, than risk the revelation of some unknown and deeper horror. And perhaps, too, there was an unspoken mandate that such a self-exposure was an act punishable by ritual sacrifice or expulsion from the tribe. But to risk being the first to step into that terror incognita, to break the illusion and unveil one's true self in a world where everybody was compelled by an invisible and unspoken threat to perpetuate an endless charade, surely that was the supreme act of courage. Again, that half-remembering lingered on the edge of my mind, this time stronger. It was as a memory of another life that had been wholly forgotten, and which seemed to exist in some borderland between dream and waking. With it came a dismay, a feeling that the present circumstances were a grotesque travesty of what had been planned, and yet of what had been planned I had just as little idea. I had come with the resolve to remove the bandages from my head, yet now, confronted with my own reflection, I found that I had barely courage enough to cut a small slit in the bandage which covered my mouth, to at least enable myself to speak. Even this for me was no easy task. My hand trembled so severely that I feared cutting the flesh beneath. Stood once more at the edge of the maelstrom, I was confronted by a scene which must have been such as Odysseus saw on the Circe's fabled isle. Yet mingled with my fear, there was now another emotion—pity. It was vividly borne in upon me that, beneath these beings' pacantic transports, there lay a profound terror, that they were merely sentient puppets, imprisoned in their costumes and their madness, that all their frenzied capering was in truth forced by some outside influence. This influence, I felt sure, was intimately, though obscurely connected to that masked, insectile creature whom I had so horrifyingly encountered earlier, and to its brethren. Of these I could now see several more. One of them was near enough that I was able to study its face. This one sported a demoniacally cornutic countenance, contorted into a terrible grin, whose expression somehow varied with the angle from which it was viewed, so that at times it resembled fury, at others wild grief or mad elation. Had I been permitted to stand there for much longer, I may well have abandoned my optimistic schemes and attempted to flee that place. This, however, was not to be, while I stood there hesitating. 
I was seized from behind and swept back into the lurid, flailing vortex by a group of revellers who had gone to refresh themselves with the strange-coloured liquids, spirits of an infernal potency, no doubt, pervade to them from behind a kind of stall at the edge of the room. These revellers were dressed in some of the ghastliest costumes I had yet seen. One appeared to have rotting, putrid flesh, an eyeball dangling from its socket, and half of its brain exposed. Another was wrapped from head to foot in flimsy-looking bandages, presumably in imitation of the techniques practised by the ancient Egyptians for embalming the corpses of their kings. This, I thought, especially absurd. Once more surrounded by those lurid bodies and flailing limbs, there succeeded an interval of time in which the fabric of my memory seems to unravel. I am aware, in those flashes and fragments which remain intact, behind the bewildering chaos of the scene, of being drawn by some mysterious and irresistible compulsion, in the service of which the very random senselessness of the reveller's movements acted, further and further, inexorably towards the centre of the maelstrom. I returned to consciousness to find myself on my hands and knees. I had somehow found my way into a clearing amidst the revellers where I could, for the moment, recover my senses. The rough treatment to which I had no doubt been subjected over the preceding minutes seemed to have upset something within my body, for I was coughing violently. It was the sound of my own coughs, echoing with a strange metallic vibration in that stony vaulted space, which alerted me to the fact that an almost complete silence had fallen, a silence broken only by the occasional subdued movement of the revellers, who, I now realised, stood almost perfectly still. Soon my coughs escalated to wretches, and I found myself vomiting an oily liquid. The fluid smelt like an acrid commixture of turpentine and incense. It coruscated with nacreous hues in the bizarre lights which swarmed nauseously on the ground before me, like a congeries of lurid bioluminescent vermin. In dismay, I felt it seeping into the bandages which covered my hands. After the last echoes of my wretches had buzzed into non-existence, there was an intense sense of anticipation— as if they were all waiting for me to deliver some speech for which I was completely unprepared. I dared not raise my eyes from the ground, yet sensed that they were watching me. I now saw rising before me that expanse of black fabric, which I knew concealed what had been the chancel of the old church. The sensation of anticipation tautened, then was broken by a rustling and a faint metallic jingling. The great curtain stirred in a manner peculiarly fussy, impatient, and stately, suggesting to my fancy an old dame's long black dress of mourning. Then it began to part in the middle, disclosing by small degrees a cryptic scene beyond. I saw a flight of stone steps with, at the top, an object draped in some heavy crimson fabric. As I gazed at this new unfolding scene— my fear of the creature surrounding me was momentarily eclipsed by the sense of some impending, horrific revelation harboured by those white stone steps 
and that mysterious and sanguined object. They must have approached very quietly while I was thus distracted, those masked, mechanical horrors, for I remained unconscious of their approach until I felt their arachnidon claws close softly over my arms. I froze as there stole over me like a cold chill the knowledge that there was now no hope of escape. Without turning, I knew from behind the masks their strange amber eyes were gazing with a cold and searching curiosity into my face. In a sudden flash I saw, as through some adventitious dimension of vision, the progress of the performance in which I was, helplessly and against my will, to play the central part, unfolding with the precision and formal clarity, with the timeless and preordained structure, with the obscure but resonantly imminent depths of symbolic significance of an ancient rite. They would convey me to the foot of that encrimsoned object, whose unknown identity filled me with such formless fear, and there they would uncover and present me to whatever it was that veiled itself in those incarnadine folds. The curtains had now parted sufficiently to disclose that object's full outline, revealing a standing rectangle of roughly the size and dimensions of a door. I now became conscious of a queer sound, a rasping, rustling susurrus like the wind-teased whispering of leaves— on a forest floor. Some intuition told me that this was the speech of those insectile creatures, that they were conferring with one another. Whatever meaning those syllables harboured, they seemed to reach an accord among themselves, for soon I was, with a queer, gently persuasion, urged towards the base of those steps. Now the curtains had fully parted, to reveal that the cryptic rectangle surmounted a square-based and flat-topped pyramidal structure, with sides formed of ascending, narrowing steps. Its top, where the hematine totem stood, was a flat platform, roughly four feet square. The side of the pyramid which now faced me formed a continuous series of steps, with the two steps separating the floor of the chancel from that of the nave. Clearly, the structure had not formed part of the original chancel, but had been constructed at a later time to serve some ritual purpose ominously incongruous with the religious function of the building itself. For a moment my body became rigid with fear. To my surprise, however, my strange captors did not force me to move forwards, only, in their indescribable way, continued to coax me as though intimating that I must enact the ritual by my own volition. As I stared up at the bloody monolith atop the pyramid, it seemed to swell in size, as if by the imminent power of some pulsing, unnatural life. At the same time, there emanated from it a fabulous magnetism, which acted upon every fibre of my being, drawing, pulling me towards it, and whatever hideous revelation it harboured, for me and for me alone. Like a somnambulist awaking, I found myself atop the platform, staring in horrified fascination into those encrimsoned folds of fabric which hid the unknown portal from my sight. Here my uncanny captors released my arms and moved away with queerly formal, almost obeisant motions. 
Then there was another bout of that curious susurration, as though a sudden gust of wind swept the forest floor, whipping the leaves into eddies and miniature whirlwinds. As this disturbance died away, all the swarming coloured lights in that place vanished. For a blessed, unmeasurable time, I floated in a void of profound darkness, taking refuge in the momentary extinction of a world of vision and revelation which had already subjected me to so many horrors, and which, I did not doubt, held still worse sights in reserve. Now I heard the faint swish of another curtain being parted, and there appeared behind the veiled totem a great disk of light, like a ghastly sun seen through the nebulous and aqueous atmosphere of some unsolid planet. I, the mysterious object, and the platform upon which we stood floated together on a raft of spectral light in the midst of a sea of inky blackness. Now, with ceremonially careful and uncannily silent movements, two of the masked creatures approached the veiled object, one on either side. Each withdrew a spidery claw from within the pale folds of its cloak, and laid it on the red fabric of the corner nearest to it. Slowly they began to lift the fabric. As it rose, the hematine folds coruscated strangely. I seemed to be watching the geological formations and reformations on the surface of some incarnadine planet over the eons of its existence, compressed into a period of less than a minute. The disclosure of the very lowest portion of the underlying object by the rising of the red veil did not provide any clarification as to that object or entity's nature. It seemed not to be a physical object at all, but to be composed of the very same light that beamed spectrally down from that luminous disk, only somehow intensified, deepened. As the veil rose still higher, an object began to take shape in the centre of this light. It was black, as if made of the inky substance of pure darkness. It stood perpendicular to the ground. Now two more of the masked creatures, who must have been waiting behind me, approached me on either side. They took my hands in their strange, mechanical claws, and began queerly teasing the ends of my fingers— in my state of shock, it took me some time to realize that they were unraveling the bandages. Now the object before me was more than halfway unveiled. The black shape that it enframed was beginning to resemble something vaguely human. Indeed, it strangely reminded me of that crude figure I had seen on the stable's door. Perhaps, I thought, that had been the image of some dark god that this inhuman company worshipped and what now faced me was the original, to which they were offering me as a ritual sacrifice. By now, they had succeeded in unwinding the bandages from my fingers, and were working their way up my wrists. The dark figure before me, I now perceived, was embroiled in a world of woven veils, tissues, gauzes of a light which appeared to have a writhing life of its own. It seemed to eat away at the edges of the shadowy shape, as though possessed of a carnivorous appetite for the darkness, its opponent and counterpart. 
I could feel the swifter and swifter progress of those masked marionettes in their deftly delicate unravelling of the bandages from my body. Yet I did not look, but remained transfixed by the scene unfolding before me. For now that scene and the figure it contained were fully unveiled. Much of the figure had now yielded to the depredations of the ravening brightness, and it seemed had become one with the swarming effulgence itself— but now it was that I saw something which disturbed me beyond all the antic pageantry which had heretofore danced before my helpless sight. It was simply this, that the figure had eyes, eyes which gazed steadily and cryptically into my own. Nor were they any ordinary eyes. They were rings of gold. I had a sensation as of the pieces of a great shadowy puzzle sliding into new arrangements of significance in dim, profound regions of my being. What was transpiring before me, I now saw, bore in the most intimate way upon the mystery of my own existence. At the same moment, there was a shift in the quality of the light which beamed down from that spectrally resplendent disk which hung over the scene in which I was so helplessly entangled. It became, somehow— thinner, more diffused. How had I not seen it before? Had it been merely my own agitation and overwrought imagination, in combination with the effect of that strange light? Or perhaps my eyes, which had so long lain entombed behind sealed lids in a subterranean chamber, were strangely affected by exposure to light, of a source and nature different to any of the phantasmagorical varieties— they had already experienced. Or perhaps, conversely, that glass was truly a portal to some other dimension, inhabited by beings of ethereal substance, each with its corrupted, fleshly echo in our material plane. Such were the ideas which formed and dissolved in my brain like the shadows of storm-clouds, as I contemplated the bewildering transformation—no, revelation—which confronted me. It was simply this. What faced me was no longer some fantastical realm of light and darkness, but simply the reflection of the room in which I stood. Here was the platform upon which I stood, a faint film of the ghostly light still clinging to its surface. Here were the masked marionettes, still skillfully applying themselves to their task. And here, in the centre of the web, was myself— a court fly whose arachnidon captors were, for their own inscrutable reasons, releasing it from its sarcophagus of woven web. Yes, the object which had exerted such a terrible influence over my mind, which had incited my fancy to such fantastical speculations, was nothing more than a plain, prosaic mirror. Likewise, that dark idol whose revelation I had so dreaded, whose unravelling I had witnessed— was simply my own reflection. Beneath the bandages I was stark naked. There I stood, like some exquisitely sculpted ivory figure, my skin pale and smooth, yet with an indescribable hint of seasoning, as of well-preserved parchment. Even now, I could feel a host of impressions, sensations, ideas and memories pressing against the gates of my mind like flood water against a wooden dam. But one more revelation 
still awaited me on the physical plane. This was the unveiling of my face, the only part of my body which the bandages still concealed. Arriving at this last portion of their task, my insectile attendants seemed to exercise greater care, as if fearing to damage fragile structures beneath. Indeed, there was abundant time for my imagination to supply the hidden physiognomy with all manner of fantastical deformations and disfigurements. I saw faces rotting and crawling with maggots, with patches of skull showing, faces with elephantine features, faces scarred beyond the semblance of humanity. These visions, and many more of their like, flashed before my mind's eye, while my masked attendants unwound the seemingly endless layers of bandages which swathed my head, before the first patch of flesh was revealed. It was part of my forehead, and, like the rest of my body, was as white and unblemished as ivory. By the time my head was fully unveiled, I had remembered much. At first the memories came in disjointed, disarticulated fragments. I remembered my ebony curls being shaved, falling to the floor where they were gathered up and placed inside small, decorated earthenware jars. I remembered a liquor, purpureal and dark, aromatic yet acrid in scent, thickly sweet on the tongue. I remembered the innumerable bandages being steeped in this same liquid and then applied to every inch of my body. I remembered being lain upon the stone altar, on a gorgeously worked, vivid tapestry, and amidst a sumptuous cornucopia of flowers. I remembered staring up at the rich imagery on the roof of the domed chamber above me, how the shapes and colours there began to dance among themselves, to wreathe and interleave, while the murmurous sound of chanting and soft singing lulled me, on my strange stone bark, gently into those dark, watery regions of the long sleep. And I remembered the people whom I am come from, the ones who called themselves the Ancients, that I was one of their most gifted offspring. I remembered, God help me, that I had chosen this fate, chosen to be preserved unto posterity, that I might contemplate in person, and not only in prophetic imagination, the fruition of our beautiful plans for humanity. Ha! The harvest is blighted, the fruit is rotted beyond recognition. No, we never predicted this, not for all our wisdom, not for all our mastery of those secret forces and patterns underlying reality which, over centuries, we codified in that wondrous language which enabled us to manipulate the very fabric of the world, to travel through other dimensions and universes. We could not predict that our descendants would willingly cast off all that we had gained for them, that in their callousness they would tear down the temples we had so painstakingly built that they would choose to worship the baser impulses which lay in their nature, which we had worked so tirelessly to liberate them from, and that, with time, their very corporeal forms would come to mould themselves after the images of the demons they worshipped. With these memories there came also the knowledge that these strange, half-living marionettes which I had so feared were, in truth, my only friends and allies in that place. 
for those techniques by which my corporeal existence had been preserved, long beyond its natural duration, were merely one among many means which the ancients had devised for the same purpose. These half-organic beings represented the form of a much older method than that which had been used on me. Yes, they contained the souls of my own ancestors, souls who had sworn themselves to the task of waiting in this place for all the uncountable years before my reawakening, so that they might guide and assist me in my task. They were the Can You, the ones who chose to wear the faces of demons, that they might stand as a constant reminder, an animate symbol of the dangers of yielding to the demonic impulses which sleep in all our hearts. The thought of my eventual return must have been the one thing which kept them from despair, as they persisted and waited through all those ages, forced to witness the gradual and horrendous transformations which must have been occurring about them. And yet, now that I was here, what could it possibly be within my power to do to remedy a world so completely given over to insanity? At last the Canyou, having completed their work, retreated into the partial shade of the steps ascending to the platform, leaving me to gaze upon my own perfect form. Suddenly— I became once more aware of the silent presence of those creatures who had before been so cacophonously vocal, and who still, I knew, must be standing in the shadowy regions which lay beyond and beneath the luminous platform upon which I stood. I could still see their forms, dark and motionless, clotted and twisted like the thickly interlacing branches of trees in a nocturnal forest. Then it was that a madness, compounded of horror and blind rage, seized all my senses. The truth was too awful to be born in equilibrium of mind. I had entered the long sleep with such hopes, expecting upon my awakening to assume the exalted task of guiding a people towards a higher stage of wisdom and art, a higher mode of being. Instead, I had awoken to a living nightmare— so I seized the mirror and descended the steps in my rage. I went down among them, wielding that mirror. When they looked and saw therein their own forms so fallen and hideous, there arose a great uproar. In a white delirium of fury, I waded amidst the clamor of their wailing, screeching and roaring. One by one they fell to the floor, clutching and tearing at the costumes which had fused with and become their own flesh, seized by the revelation and despair of what they had become, of their irreversible disfigurement of body and soul. The babble and the white noise of my rage grew and grew, until, finally, it eclipsed my consciousness. When I woke— I was lying on my back on a soft bed, feeling somewhat recovered from my ordeal. I was staring upwards, into a roof-space which receded into a realm of complexly shadowed and juxtaposed beams and rafters, laced together by a system of cobwebs so elaborate that it seemed in some way to be aiding the oaken structure in its architectural function of support. Sitting up, I discovered that I was in a small, square chamber, furnished with several aged wooden chests, and a writing-table. 
In each of the four walls was a small, louvred aperture. The space was illuminated by several lamps made from a white, quartz-like crystal. The soft luminosity which this substance radiated did not in the least hurt my eyes, and yet lit everything it fell upon with a perfect lucidity. I realized that I was in the church's tower, in what must once have been the bell-loft. The can you must have, as best they could, prepared this place to be my living quarters. They must, too, have carried me up here after I had lost consciousness in that arena below. As if in response to this thought, I now noticed a movement in one of the corners of the room. What I had at first, in my drowsy state, taken to be some object or pile of objects hidden under a white cloth, was now moving strangely towards me. It was the can you with the demon face. Now, of course, I had no fear of the creature, knowing it to be animated by the spirit of one of my own ancestors. Communicating to me by way of gestures of its mechanical hands, which conveyed much more of its sense to me than did the rustling syllables of its sibilant language, it acquainted me with the room in which I was, it seemed, to spend the foreseeable future. One of the chests held a selection of the long, colourful silken robes of the kind favoured by the ancients, adorned with intricate, hieratic designs. Even after all these years, they were almost perfectly preserved. The contents of another chest, however, were of much greater interest to me. These were a large number of scrolls, with stoppers made of the same luminous mineral as the lamps. The documents they contained, as I soon discovered, furnished me with a guide for learning once more the language of the ancients, that same pictorial script whose gorgeous interwoven hieroglyphs had flowered so entrancingly and yet bafflingly across the domed roof of the chamber in which I had awoken and which, during my time in the long sleep, I had forgotten, much as any skill is temporarily forgotten, if it is not practised for a long time. And so, in part to beguile the long hours of silence in this strange, fallen world, and partly to foster some sense of connection with the people from whom I am come, and to aid in the recovery of more of my memories of my existence before— I had embarked upon my journey over the centuries through the ocean of the long sleep, I set myself to reacquire that language which once I remembered was as natural and familiar to me as my own thoughts and perceptions. I found that I made swift progress. The language of the ancients is nothing other than the soul of the world, which is identical with the soul of every living being, and through which each living being is connected to the whole. It is life's flowing tapestry, codified in a system of symbols and spatiogrammatical relations, as infinitely flexible as the forms and processes and interlaced patterning of life itself. As such, although the initial acquisition is difficult, ultimately it becomes perceived, understood, and wielded in pure intuition. It facilitates a perfect integration and synthesis of the rational mind— with those deeper layers of being which we call the soul, and which are, in turn, part and parcel of the universe's own soul, or psyche. Those who master this language become magicians of a kind, able, with certain important boundaries, to perform seemingly miraculous feats. They can, for example, 
leave their own bodies and mould their disembodied psychic energy into idola or imagos, semi-physical forms of other creatures, or simply roam in the form of spirits through other dimensions of time and space. In this way, they can also enter into the great spiritual mechanism of time. In spirit, they can travel backwards to what has already passed, stretching like the links of a long chain to the beginning and source of things, or else see the future in its infinitude of branching possibilities. Thus there has come to me, in the midst of the isolation of my new life, a hope, for I now know that I can, by entering into this underlying psychic matrix, return, in a limited manner, to the time from which I set out so many millennia ago. Never can my physical body travel back, to be at home and once more among my kin, but that is the sacrifice I knowingly chose, even if I could not have known what nightmare of futurity awaited me. I do not think I will ever return. The Canyu will remain here. It is their own chosen curse, to be forever tied to their half-mechanical bodies, unable now even to enter the Matrix. But they will continue— to search among that lurid world below for such as might retain the traces of their original, unfallen nature, however corrupted and decayed they have become. It is my belief that in this they will not be successful. However, should they, by whatever fabulous chance, find such a one, they will have all the tools necessary to school that one in the ways of their distant forebears, and to nurture and coax into fresh life the dormant, perhaps atrophied, seed of their soul. It is for such a one also that I leave behind this account of my experiences. Therefore, dear reader, whose very existence I would regard as a miracle, I neither ask nor expect your forgiveness. I am a coward, but I cannot remain here, stranded upon this nightmarish promontory of time, waiting for a time and a person whose coming I do not believe in. I feel a terrible cold creeping into my soul, and my heart longs for home. <laughs>